good morning. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Today, we actually have a shorter text for once, which is kind of nice. And in the providence of the Lord, this just happens to be the next text that was in the Gospel of Luke that I'd be preaching, and it worked out that we would also be having a baptism at the close of our service. So we have a text about the baptism of our Lord, and then we have a baptism of some of his people who wish to be obedient and publicly identify with his death, burial, and resurrection as Christians. So I I just thought that that was really, really neat how the Lord worked that out. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized... It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, we come to you again on this Lord's Day, a day in which we remember what Jesus did both at the cross as well as his conquering death in his resurrection Sunday morning. And that resurrection is what gives us hope. It's what gives us the resources necessary to win the war that we are in as Christians, waging the war against our flesh, the war against the world, the war against the devil. And it is because of our Lord who himself identified with us and took upon himself our sins that we could at all be considered righteous, let alone be called children of the Most High. So we worship you this morning and we thank you for this glorious text and I pray that you would help us to take the truths from it that would encourage our hearts and would also be something we take into this week as we seek to live out our own new life in Christ. We pray this now in his name. Amen. Luke, of course, is writing this letter to, letter, book, to Theophilus, and he wants Theophilus to understand that what we have as Christians is a very real, a very vibrant, and a very true faith. Nothing that we believe as Christians is fictional, nothing is myth, nothing in any way could be considered misconstrued by the early church or some kind of twisted version of Judaism, this is in fact all true. And Theophilus as a, probably a a Roman um, aristocrat, (laughs) that's the second time I've done that. It's like three Sundays in a row. Aristocrat, (laughs) He he is asking questions about whether or not the Christian faith is real and true. And here is Luke showing over and over again, not only that the realities of the Christian truth claims are true, but also the realities of the identity of who Jesus is, is also true. And he gives us example after example, demonstrating that this man truly is the Son of God. Perhaps, though, nothing could be more grand and glorious than this text that the other Gospels refer to, allude to, in the Gospel of John as we read in our scripture reading this morning, and then explicitly describe in Matthew and Mark, Luke decides to actually give this very little 
um, airtime, as it were. He gives us two verses. If you go to Matthew, if you go to Mark, you get a little more information. But when you come to Luke, Luke doesn't give us very much information. And yet, in these two verses, he shares with us realities concerning Jesus Christ that I think are profound, simple, but profound. And I think they help us better understand not only who Jesus is, but also who we are. When we talked last time, we saw that John was doing a baptism, and we didn't get into all of the details about um, baptism, although it was in the Old Testament, a rite that was done to Gentiles who wished to be initiated into the Jewish community. But here, John's baptism is something that's very unique. He's going and he's telling people a message they don't want to hear. There's something wrong with you. You are a sinner. You must repent. And people come to him and they say, okay, what does my repentance look like? I'm coming here. I'm supposed to repent of my sins. I'm supposed to be baptized. But then what? What does my life look like? And he gave illustrations to each group that came to him. Some Roman soldiers came to him. They said, what about us? We want to repent, but what does that look like? And so John gave them practical examples. Don't be brutal to people. Be gentle and be content with the wages that you have. Don't be demanding more money from your employers. Other people were asking questions as well. But the reality is is that this baptism was signifying the washing away of the sins that the people were repenting of. So John is doing this. He's at the River Jordan. He's baptizing people. People are coming to him. They're confessing their sins to the Lord, and then they're being baptized, symbolizing the washing away of their sin. And suddenly, in verse 21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was baptized. I honestly think a lot of us tend to just gloss over this because I think we tend to think of what John was doing in his baptism is similar really to what we are doing when we are doing our own baptism, but this was very shocking. If Jesus is who Luke says he has been over the last two and a half chapters, this is a shocking statement. Jesus was sent by God. He was born miraculously through the overshadowing of God's Holy Spirit on a virgin named Mary. He is described as being submissive to his parents when his parents were looking for him for three days. They finally find him in the temple, and he says, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? Close to his parents, and we have there at the close of chapter 2 the reality that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Why is Jesus coming to John to be baptized? If the prerequisite for this baptism was that people first prayed to God confessing their sins, why is Jesus being baptized? That doesn't make any sense. And Theophilus, if he's reading this carefully, is scratching his head at this point because it doesn't make sense. I thought this Jesus is supposed to be perfect. I thought this Jesus is the one who's sent from God. I thought, according to the truth claims of Christianity, this Jesus is God. Why is he being baptized for the remission of sins? This really is the question at the heart of these two verses, and that is the question that I'd like to answer for you this morning. Why was Jesus baptized? And there's three reasons that I'd like to share with you as we briefly look at this text. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, the first reason was this, because Jesus was baptized to identify with our sinfulness as human beings. 
The people come to him in verse 21. They were baptized, and they were confessing their sins before him, and rightly so. Joe, who came over to to John to be baptized, he comes over and he says, look, I I sinned in this way, and, and I want to confess my sins before God, and I want to truly repent of them, and I want to grow and change. And Joe, who gets baptized, has 50 other people in line who know him waiting to be baptized as well, and they can all corroborate, yeah, Joe's not a great guy. He's a sinner. All these people come to be baptized, and it was truly for those who repented of their sins. And all of a sudden, at the back of the line, there's this stranger standing. And John is listening to each person as they come. They repent of their sins. They've heard John's preaching where he said, truly repent. You cannot just assume that getting dunked in water is enough, that the religious external observances is enough for you to have merit and standing before God. You must truly repent of your sins. These people are seeking to truly repent of their sins. He baptizes them, and suddenly he recognizes someone who comes into the water with him. Luke does not record for us this part, but Matthew does. And in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And here's what John says. John doesn't say, well, I've been waiting. I honestly thought it was going to be, you know, forever before you finally realize you need to get baptized too. You got to repent of your sins too. It's not what he does. The man in the water who has been baptizing people, who has been preaching that they must truly repent, who leapt in the womb of his mother in the presence of Mary, says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? In fact, Matthew records that John tries to prevent him. What are you doing? You don't need to be baptized. This baptism is a baptism of repentance, but you, the perfect, righteous, pure Son of God, the Messiah, you don't need to be baptized. Why are you coming to me? John tries to prevent him. He protested that Jesus come to him to be baptized, and surely we can understand John's protest. Jesus is the perfect, holy, pure, altogether righteous one. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? The answer, I think, is simple, yet incredibly profound. I believe that Jesus came to John to be baptized, to identify with us as sinful people. One of the things about the suffering servant that Isaiah records in Isaiah 53 is that he came and would identify with or bear the sins of his people. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of of his soul and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Notice this in verse 11. For he shall bear their iniquities. Now look closely at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That phrase, he was numbered with the transgressors. Often we read that because of its connection to him on the cross as he is on the cross between two malefactors, as it says in the King James. But why is that significant? Because Jesus said, I will identify with my people who need to be redeemed. What happened at the cross? One of the greatest, most horrific evils was committed. Where a pure, perfect, last Adam is nailed and brutally killed, murdered on a cross. But more importantly, it was foreordained by God. This is the preaching in the Gospel of Acts that this was ordained by God. It was no mistake that he was murdered. It was no mistake that he was maligned. It was no mistake that he was nailed to a cross. It was ordained by God in eternity past so that he could be numbered with the transgressors and take upon himself all of the concentrated evil, sin, wickedness, vileness of me. So that when God poured out his wrath on that hour and the clouds are darkened and Jesus Christ, who's gasping for every breath, decides to, if I could use this, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful, he could waste his breath by saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the wrath of God concentrated on him because he saw not the pure, righteous son of God, but the sins of Rodney King. Poured out his wrath on that perfect one because that perfect one, Jesus, was baptized to identify with me. He was, came as the perfect, pure, second person of the Godhead to represent and identify with you. Jesus died for our sins, but he began his ministry being identified with us and our sins. It was as if he was saying, I know I don't need to be baptized. I have nothing to repent of, but I will be immersed into the waters and be raised back up out of them as if I was one of them. So that when I am hanging on that cross and the concentrated eternal wrath of God is poured out on me, 
it will be because I have been numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was baptized to identify with your sinfulness. If you're in this room and you have not clung to Jesus Christ, he did that to identify with you. He's not some aloof God that's so transcendent and far off that he, he doesn't identify or understand you. He is a God who knows very intimately every detail of your life. He knows every sordid thought you've had, every wicked word you have said. And 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Godhead was immersed in water and raised back up by his cousin John so that he could take all that vileness from you and let it be pasted upon his pure, righteous self so that when God poured his wrath on the cross... He poured his wrath on your sin. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death, demonstrating his power over death. And now the gospel message that Luke is trying to help Theophilus realize and that the Christian church for 2,000 years has been trying to get people to realize is you have to embrace wholeheartedly by faith the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus because he identified with your sins. He identified with you, and the only way that you can have eternal life is not by yourself being baptized in the waters of our tank, not by sitting in a pew right now, assuming that sitting in the pew is somehow earning favor before God and merit in your stead and in his eyes, but clinging simply and wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ who identified with your sinfulness so that when Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the assurance. But it begins because Jesus was baptized to identify with your sinfulness. This baptism of Jesus, in some senses, was absolutely necessary. It was a step necessary for him, as he says in the other Gospels, to fulfill all righteousness, to show that really what happened on the cross was not right because God's wrath was poured on an innocent man. He did nothing wrong. He was an innocent lamb to the slaughter, but he identified with your sinfulness and he took all of that sinfulness upon himself so that, so that, when God looks at him, he sees your sin, and when God looks at you, he sees his righteousness. There's a great switch that happens. So Jesus was baptized to identify with our sinfulness, but also he was baptized to inaugurate his ministry. In verse 21, after Jesus comes there to be baptized, it says, while he prayed, the heaven was opened. Now, if you have read the other gospel accounts, you'll note that there seems to be a discrepancy here, and a lot of critics of the Bible and Christianity have brought this up because Matthew and Mark bring up the point and they make this very vociferously immediately after Jesus is raised out of the water immediately the heavens are rended open and the spirit of God descends like a dove but here Luke doesn't say that he says and while he prayed while Jesus prayed so critics have said ah there's yet one out of hundreds of, of discrepancies and contradictions in the Bible. This is why we cannot accept that the Bible is infallible. It has to have mistakes in it because it was written by men and people make mistakes. 
But this is uh, the, the simple answer to this, and this is what I don't understand, is you, you have to tip your hand and show just how much you hate God and his word if you want to willfully ignore a simple answer to that, which is Jesus comes down, he prays to his father and is baptized and certainly is praying as he's being baptized. Jesus is exemplifying the very principle that Paul said, pray without ceasing. So Jesus is being baptized and he's praying as he is being baptized. And as he comes out of the water and is talking with his father, with the first person of the Godhead, it says that the heaven was opened. And this is, in our English language, this is not as dramatic as it really is in the original language. The original language gives the idea that it's as if it was being rended open. It was being torn open. This is something that's always been a cataclysmic thing in Scripture. For example, what happens when Noah goes into the ark and he shuts the door and then seven days later what happens? The heavens are rended open and it's as if the flood waters of God's judgment come pouring down. What happens in the book of Revelation? God rends open the heavens and he's casting down the stars and the moon is turning red. It's always cataclysmic. And it always is God communicating something. In the case of Noah, judgment. In the case of Revelation, judgment. But Isaiah records something for us that I think is very intriguing. In chapter 64 and verse 1, there's actually an invitation by the prophet where he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. The invitation here is for God to manifest himself. Display your glory. Open the heavens as if they are a curtain that you could just rip in half. Or like those, those bodybuilders who can like rip telephone books. Rip open the, the heavens so that we might see and tremble at the presence of Almighty God. Luke says that's exactly what happened when Jesus was baptized. As he prays, he goes under the water, communing with his Father, identifying with sinful people, and as he comes up, the heavens are opened up. And honestly, I would give anything to just see what that had to have looked like. And I wonder how many other people were still there watching this whole thing unfold. This guy, they don't know him from a hole in the ground. Why is John protesting that this guy should be baptized? I mean, he looks just like me and you. He probably has sins he's done and needs to be, to be repenting of and get baptized for, right? That's what all the people are thinking as they look at this interaction between John and Jesus. And yet John is saying, this man does not, not deserve to be baptized. In fact, I need to be baptized by him. I am a sinful man, John says. And yet as they watch Jesus submit himself to the identification of sinful people. They see him under the water, 
come back up and suddenly this cataclysmic event happens where the heavens are rended open. And in verse 22, we see something that Luke describes with brevity, yet is filled with realities about who Jesus is. And that frankly leads me to that last point there. Jesus was baptized to demonstrate his identity. The, the idea here, by the way, with the heavens being rendered or being opened up, it's showing that this is the beginning of something that God is doing with this one. He is speaking his word through the incarnate word, through Jesus. And now demonstrates who Jesus is in verse 22. It says, the heaven is open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit was in the form of a dove. Whenever you see a Sunday school depiction of Jesus Christ's baptism, you'll see a dove coming down, but that's because that's the only really image we have of what this looked like. We don't know what it looked like, but clearly the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, descends, and it says here in the New King James, in bodily form, which is like a head-scratcher. The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form. I don't know really why all of the Gospels describe it in the same way, that the form is like a dove. Perhaps it literally looked like a dove, but they knew this is not an actual bird. This is a manifestation of God's Spirit. Whatever the case is, they all record that it, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And my question is, Why? Why did they say the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove? And frankly, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and even John, all four of them who record this event, none of them explain why. So really all I'm doing is guessing. And your guess is as good as mine. But I'll venture mine since I'm up here. One of the Themes in the Old Testament with the dove is that it's a symbol of peace and gentleness. Think of Noah. He's in the ark. The ark is the place of safety. It is really the salvation of Noah and his family and the created order because all the animals would have died were it not for God saving people through the ark. As the flood waters subside, what does Noah do? He opens the window. And he lets out a raven, and he lets out a dove. And the dove comes back because there's no place for it to rest its feet. Later on, he sends the dove out again, and it comes back with something in its mouth. And then, eventually, it doesn't come back at all. The event, the cataclysmic event of the flood was an act of judgment by God. And what does Noah do with a harmless dove? He demonstrates the symbol of peace. Is it safe for sinful creatures to come out? And the dove, the harmless creature, goes out. And when it doesn't return, Moses knows, according to Scripture, that it is now time and safe for us to exit the ark. 
I am not entirely certain if that is what the case is, but I cannot help but think with the, the connection of the cataclysmic rending of the heavens, just like it is in, the, in Noah and here with the baptism of Jesus, that when the symbol, the dove, excuse me, that is descending in bodily form upon Jesus Christ comes down, I cannot help but wonder if people reading this account, particularly the Jewish people who knew their Old Testament scriptures, would have immediately thought about the reality of the ark and Noah and the sending out of a dove. If it is, what happens here is different than any of the other baptisms that John has been doing. What has happened is rather than sinful people being immersed in waters and raised up again as a symbol of washing away their sins, Jesus, the perfect, pure, righteous Son of God, is immersed in the waters, raised up to identify with his sinful people and to demonstrate the washing he would do for them. But God doesn't look down upon him and say, you are indeed truly a sinner and you must repent, but instead descends upon the Son, showing everybody, I am not at war with him. He descends with the symbol of peace. And that, I think, even though it is me venturing a guess, is corroborated by what comes next. For not only do the people see the heavens rended open and the Spirit of God descending in bodily form like a dove on the sun, demonstrating that this is, I believe, one with whom God is at peace. But the voice comes from heaven that says, You are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. The statement there in verse 22, you are my beloved son, we won't turn there, but in Psalm chapter 2 is a statement that is given. And some in the early church, when they were trying to understand who is Jesus, suggested that this is here God adopting Jesus officially as his son. That up to this point, Jesus has simply been a normal person, just like you and I. But at this momentous occasion, God said, I am now anointing you. And that's another aspect of the Spirit descending down, is the fact that it is an anointing, that, like God would do upon his prophets, like God would do upon the kings of Israel. It is his anointing of his son, and he is saying, I am now adopting you as my son. But the early church immediately realized that that couldn't be right, and they rejected that teaching because they said that just means that Jesus is not eternal. If Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, he must be eternally the son of God. So this is not God saying, I'm adopting you into my family and making you my son. This is God giving a statement of fact. You are my son. And anybody here wondering why you're being baptized and why John is making such a fuss about this, here's why. Because he is the son of God. He is the second person of the Godhead who knows no evil, who knows no wickedness, who knows no vile. He is the Son of God, and he not only is the Son, he is a beloved Son. 
the sinful people who were baptized in the water and raised up as a symbol of the washing away of their sins could not rightly be said they were beloved sons of God. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked. The Bible says that those who try to do good cannot, they cannot please God with their good. The Bible says all have come sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And the prophet Isaiah says all of our righteousnesses as God's people is nothing but filthy rags. Those cannot rightly be said to be people who are beloved in the same sense that Jesus was. Surely God loves his creatures. God so loved the world. But it's not in the same sense that he says, you are my beloved son. And in you, I am well pleased. God is pleased with purity and righteousness and holiness. And here is the son, the second person of the Godhead, who is yielding himself to the plan of God, the father, and is identifying with sinful people. And I believe that when God says to him, you are my beloved son and you are, I am well pleased, he is quoting again from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, where he's talking about the servant of the Lord. And in verse 1, he says, Behold, look, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And if you continue on in that passage, it talks about the gentleness, a bruised reed he will not break. That gentleness, that peace that he brings. Here is God, the Father, looking down as the Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, descends in bodily form on the Son, a symbol both of his anointing as the Messiah, a symbol of his peace with the Father, and then the Father looking down and speaking these words of love and affection. This is who Jesus is. He's not a mere man. He's not a man who was suddenly adopted by God and became conscious of his godness, like some of the liberal theologians of the 19th and 20th century said. He is the son of God who has always existed in eternal fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. And so what you see here in this passage, in fact, in my Bible, what I tend to do is I put a little triangle by verses where you see all three persons of the Godhead. You see the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form. You see the Son who has been yielding and obeying the plan of the Father to redeem people, and he goes and does so by identifying with their sinfulness, by beginning his ministry, and then you have the first person of the Godhead, the Father, speaking these words of love and affection. Jesus was baptized to demonstrate his identity as the Son of God. And that's exactly what we read in our Bible reading. John says, I testify. And I saw this happen. I saw the Spirit descend upon him, and God told me the one whom the Spirit descends, he is the Messiah. I saw it with my own two eyeballs. I saw the Spirit of God descend on him, and I bear witness that he is the Son of God. If Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus was baptized to identify with my sinfulness and your sinfulness, and if Jesus demonstrated his 
obedience to the plan of the Father, if all of that's true, then anything less than submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ is outright rebellion. No person can say, well, I'm just going to let it go. I mean, the Bible does seem to be a book with myth, and I'm just going to pass all of this. I'm just going to assume it's not real. If that is what people are doing, they're doing so at their own peril. Because this book, if it is true, is showing us that Jesus, as the Son of God, demonstrated his purity and his righteousness by identifying with our sinfulness so that God could pour his wrath on him. And if you reject that, you're rejecting the only hope you have. You're, you're rejecting the ark of your salvation. So my first appeal is to those in this room who have rejected him so far. You've rejected him. You've turned away from the gospel. I'm appealing to you. I'm begging you. Don't. Trust Christ today. He identified with your sinfulness so that you wouldn't have to pay for your own sins. He paid for them. He paid them for you. And what you must do, according to the the gospel and according to what Paul teaches in the book of Romans, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. Just as Luke is saying, just as John the Baptist said, just as the church has said for the last 2,000 years, he is the Son of God. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's not rotting in a grave somewhere. He truly has risen again. The assurance is if you do all of that, if you place your faith in him, you will be saved from your sins. For those of us in this room who are Christians, have you thought about this? If Jesus came to identify with your sinfulness, and if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, what happens then when the great exchange has taken place? God looks at Jesus and sees sinful Rodney King in all of his vileness, all of his sinfulness, and his outright cosmic rebellion. And he pours his wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross for Rodney. But then he turns to Rodney and he sees a pure, righteous holiness. And he says, to Rodney, you are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. That's you. The righteousness of Jesus is on you. And God looks at you and says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That doesn't mean our lives are perfect, obviously. That doesn't mean that we won't sin but it does mean that you are saved from your sins and one day as the beloved child of God, you will be in his presence forever. And it's all because Jesus identified with your sinfulness and took your sin upon himself. Can we not be amazed at that? Can we not just have our hearts overwhelmed with, with praise and adoration to the God who gave to us that liberation from our sin? I don't know about you, But reading those words that the father says to Jesus, the son, knowing that he sees that same righteousness on me because that righteousness has been credited to me is pretty overwhelming. 
And it's even more overwhelming when I see my daily struggle with sin still. But as Christians, if Jesus is the Son of God who identified with our sinfulness and bore our iniquities so that he could earn our merit before God, I think that 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 deserves nothing less than lives committed to him, than hearts overflowing in worship, and lips that are speaking nothing less than the praises of our Savior and our King. Let's pray. Lord, you are so gracious and kind to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died to us, the apostle writes. And one day, we as Christians long to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. So Lord, I pray that as Christians, we would continually, daily, offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to you, that our hearts would overflow with praise and adoration for such extravagant mercy we have been shown. And Lord, I pray for any person in this room who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ alone for his or her salvation. That is, Lord, my prayer, that your spirit would descend upon their hearts and open their eyes to see just how beautiful it is to trust Christ and how wonderful it is to know that their sins can be forgiven. I pray that if there is someone here that you would move in their hearts to come talk to me or to one of our deacons and that we might be able to share with them the wondrous, liberating gospel message of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, as our hearts are overflowed with such praise and adoration to you, to not let it wane, but let it set ablaze a fire in our hearts, and that each day we would overflow with praise to you. We pray in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.